Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Joe Lynham in for Mandy Johnson and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour or so. Coming up on today's show, Goodbye United Kingdom, Descent into Chaos 2015 to 2022, the new book chronicles the Brexit crisis and all that that has meant. We talk to the author, Josh White. With the Minister for Public Expenditure, Pascal Dunhu, telling people they are free to deposit their money in foreign banks for better interest rates, we take a look at what's available and how easy or hard it is. And finally, news this week from the CSO, the Central Statistics Office, it found that one in five CEOs are now female. We're joined by two female bosses to thrash it out. And you can email us always, taking stock, all one word, at newstalk.com. That's taking stock at newstalk.com. And I'm open on Twitter at stockNT, at stockNT on Twitter, now known as X. So let's start with that uh, female boss's story. A new report from the CSO has found that nearly one in five CEOs in Ireland are women. The Gender Balance in Business Survey 2023 revealed that 19% of CEOs are female, which is a 6% increase of the figures for 2021. The report also found that female chairpersons increased by 5% to almost 19%, along with members of the boards of directors, where women account for one in four positions. Joining me now to investigate what these increases mean, what it translates into, is Julian Hartford, the country executive with the 30% Club. And also sitting opposite the desk is Caroline Bockel, the chief executive officer of Board Iskivara, Ireland's Seafood Development Agency. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to all of you. Can we start with you, Caroline? Are you surprised? Underwhelmed? 19%? Good enough? Bad enough? I think it's I think it's a really good position for us to be in right now. Um, I think it's really interesting when you consider where we started from, because one of the things that, that I was thinking about today is, you know, it was only 1973 when we had a marriage bar, when there was no women working in senior positions in the public a lot service. Of, a lot of younger listeners won't, can't get their head around this. It's incredible, isn't it? That w- when my mother, for example, got married, she was supposed to leave her job. That was expected of mm. her. Well, it was required. And in the public service, you know, it was the law. So um, in the public sector until July 1973, uh, you had to leave when you got married and you were banned to, from participating in the service if you were married. So, you know, the only women who were in the the service, and I had the great honour of working with some of them over my career, were women who never chose to get married. But for the vast majority of those who did get married, of course, it wasn't available to them. So um, just recently, um, I was at a retirement um, evening for two women who had joined in the 70s and listening to some of their stories were incredible. And it is those women who really have paved the way for the rest of us, have normalised women being in the workforce and have really done a lot of the heavy lifting that allows us uh, to be where we are today. So I think if you start with that as a as a start point, um, the numbers are good, but of course they could be, should be and undoubtedly will be much better as we go forward. Um, but it's certainly good to see we're moving in the right direction. Gillian, let me bring you in. You're the country executive with the 30% club. Uh, looks as if we're 11% shy of 30%. We are. We are. But the good news uh, within that is if, if you look at the board numbers, um, more than 25% of the companies that participated in the survey are gone to 40% or beyond. And we see similar numbers in terms of executives at C-suite. 
But I think the most important thing about the data this week is, first of all, that we have the data and huge thanks to the CSO for producing it, because so many countries across the EU are really only tracking companies that are listed on the stock exchange, Mm -hmm. which is a very small number of companies for Ireland. But this is an incredible piece of data. It covers more than 500 organisations. And these are medium to large companies. They're not small. So we've great data. We're able to see a trend in the data, which luckily is going in the right direction. But we also have some action points out of it that it points to, because what we have discovered in Ireland and I'm very like Caroline, I started in financial services in the 70s and we also had the marriage bar. So for a long time, companies weren't talking about this. Like in some ways, it's only 50 years, but For 30 years, we said there are no senior women because of the marriage bar. For the next 10 years, we said it'll happen organically. But for the last 10 years in Ireland, Irish companies have now said, no, this needs a plan. It needs action. It needs counting. It needs targets. And this is a really good indication that those action plans are starting to take hold. Do you trust the data? There are some unscrupulous companies that will say (laughs) they have a certain number of female directors and they might not have. I've seen it. I've seen them put, put men down as women. You're laughing, but I'm telling you, it, it happens. <laughs> I, I, I do trust the... Because it the, is self-selecting, the, these surveys. Well, the, when it's the CSO, it's a little bit more than self-selecting. There is a requirement to respond to the CSO and it's very much national data and it is treated very seriously. Mm. We'd have similar data across the 30% Club. So for listeners who aren't aware, 30% Club is a global campaign supported by chairs and CEOs of large organisations who are seriously committed to better gender balance at the most senior levels for better outcomes. But you have to rebrand when it goes to 40%? Um, no, because 30% is where we start, not where we finish. Um, and we still have a way to go because we want this to happen across every business in Ireland and every business globally. Irish figures are really positive compared to the global numbers. but within Not the, up there with Norway yeah, or the Scandies yet. I'd challenge if you look at both. Uh, one of the things that we have the opportunity to have a look at within the 30% Club out of Ireland is that we've never focused just on boards. We've always focused on boards and C-suites because what we've seen in countries like Norway, like France, like Spain, that have relied very much on quotas for boards is that they've met the number and then they stop. It becomes a cap. But what has happened is women have moved out of C-suite into boards and they've made no progress uh, at C-suite and in some cases have gone back. So if you look at the last European Women uh, on Boards survey, it's about 18 months old now at this stage. And that looks at the companies in the Eurostock 600. So there's about 670 organisations This data comes from mainly countries with quotas. Ireland and the UK are very rare in terms of encouraging targets. But in that data, only 7% of the CEOs are women. Mm. Whereas if you compare that to the new figures out of Ireland, what we're seeing is the number of female CEOs increasing, the number of board members increasing, the number of female chairs increasing. So it's very much a circular pipeline. Yeah, Caroline uh, from Bordy Skivara, there is a risk that women will get promoted to boards just for the annual report and just for the presentation and just for the Scheinwelt uh, of having so many women on the board. 
when do we get to the stage whereby you would say, actually, it needs to be the law EU-wide? I think, you know, the issue of quotas for boards has been a hot topic for, for years and years. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you we shouldn't need to have quotas, but you 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 would have to have these sort of quotas if they're not being filled naturally. I don't think a lot of boards now um, are regarding it as as much of a just, you know, prioritising the gender balance above the business of the board. I, I don't think most boards are in a position that they can do that anymore. Uh, corporate governance is getting ever stronger. The need for for companies to have really good strategic leadership is is imperative. So I think good boards are appointing good women. Um, they're helping develop them and train them on boards. Um, but I think there are few boards now who are just appointing women uh, to fill that seat. Um, but I certainly think there's a good opportunity. You know, if we look, for example, at the sort of women, as Gillian said, coming through the C-suite level and going on to boards, you, there's there's some good directions they're coming from. You know, a lot of those women will have a finance background. That's what I have myself. Mm-hmm. Economics, strategy, um, maybe from a STEM background. And there are things that allow their progress and their achievements to be measured uh, and to be very specifically delivered. And that's what's really helping propel them into the C-suite and then ultimately onto boards where they're providing very good technical expertise as well as obviously helping with the balance of the board. Well, you you make a very good point about education. Previously, it was all, STEM was all dominated, the science, technology Mm. uh, and uh, mathematics, etc. They were dominated by men. Mm. That is no longer the case. Women are doing engineering. They are doing the science subjects. Uh, That's the key, isn't it? Having the education and the qualifications. Absolutely. It's about having all of those things but I, then I think once people get into companies um, you know there's a need for other supports there for, for women to help them um, there's there are things like, for example, good networks and good mentoring. And I think we've been talking about these for years and they're invaluable for men and for women, particularly for women. But I think there's some really interesting research that's come out of the United States recently, which is which is showing that women who are in groups, for example, uh, are very much underplaying their um, their participation in that group and they're not taking the credit for the work. And that having more... Say that again. They're, when they're in a group, they don't take credit for the work that they actually do. But when they're in a mixed group. So when they're in a group with men and women, they're much more reluctant to take credit for their work. They talk about the we all the time rather than the I. Now, is, is that a female flaw that they're too modest? Is it a flaw? I don't know. Um, the 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 flip side of that is that you women are really good at engaging teams because they have this we approach. So it's not a flaw, I don't think, but I think it's certainly something that women need to be aware of, and um, we need to look at how we can put in steps so that women can uh, take the the credit for it and say I did this without uh, being seen to be to be overstepping or being aggressive. And yet, a man will perceive a woman as uppity if she puts her hand up and says, no, that was all me. Let's be honest. Uh, Potentially, but there are ways around that, you know, to individualise more of the work of groups, for example, so that somebody can own the credit because it's been assigned to them Mm. uh, is probably a good way to do it. So it's it's a question of having to to look now about how to get the best out of the women who are coming up through organisations and recognising that, you know, women approach work sometimes differently and that produces benefits, but then sometimes it can hold them back as well. And it's about trying to to optimise that. Gillian Hartford from the 30% Club. An advert has posted, you need 10 attributes. The man sees one attribute that he has and applies. And the woman sees one attribute that she doesn't have and doesn't apply. 
Yes. And that is... So this goes back to something up here in the female brain that says, no, I'm not good enough, when the actual fact they are. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Firstly, it is a very well-researched fact. Women will actually expect to tick all 10. Men will typically say, I can tick two or three. wing it. Oh, not only that, once they see me, they will love me and they will take a chance on me. And what we can do is... Is that down to testosterone that men are risk takers? (laughs) Oh, it's attributed to so many different factors. You know, if if you have two-year-olds playing and jumping on the back of the couch, you know, you're more likely to say, oh, boys will be boys and say to your daughter, be careful there, don't hurt yourself and and lift her down. Mm. So there's so many things in society that fit into, you know, how we're made, how we think. But what we're starting to see is actually, as Caroline says, it's not about the fact that these are flaws. These are differences. And how do we think about not necessarily changing the person, but changing the system? So we have great conversations with organisations and say, well, if the ticking 10 requirements is true in terms of research and fact, if you really want to encourage more inclusion, stop writing your job descriptions with 10 requirements. Write your job descriptions in a very different way. Run your selection process in a very different way. As long as we keep having conversations about how do we change how men behave and how do we change how women behave. Don't you need to change how HR executives behave? Because the majority of HR are probably women. So maybe they are the people you need to talk to. (laughs) Well, having spent most of my career as a, a HR executive, most of us would argue that unfortunately we don't have that much power. But it does have to come from senior leadership. This is really a change in the culture within organisations. How do we talk about talent? How do we develop talent? How do we measure performance? Some of the conversations Caroline was talking about, how do we encourage the owner of the meeting to encourage more inclusive styles and watch for those who are quiet and watch for those. I I was uh, at an event yesterday, a packed room of female talented board members. uh, And one of the speakers was talking about how do you watch for the person who sucks the oxygen out of the room? And how do you watch for the person who has great insight but is very quiet? That's the role of an inclusive leader. And we see far more organisations looking at how do they develop those skills, both for situations that are in the office, but also more importantly today, the agile and hybrid work situations where some of those examples of the loudspeaker and the quiet speaker become amplified. Well, that's a very good point. Caroline, working from home, is that good or bad for getting women into the C-suite? Oh, it's fantastic. There's no doubt about that. I mean, hybrid work, I think, is good for businesses generally. Um, certainly in BIM, we've seen you know tremendous levels of productivity. Um, and I think uh, ultimately having a hybrid work environment helps everybody in the workforce. It particularly helps women, but it helps everybody. And I think, as, as Gillian said, the sort of new skills that teams are having to learn now as they work with people who are remote from them and who are online, who aren't in the room, lend themselves very well to exactly what we've been talking about, more awareness of different types of styles Uh, the individual contribution. That's something that's become really important during hybrid and it's something that most organisations now are doing a lot of training in, much more awareness, emotional intelligence around meetings, the dynamics of meetings uh, and so on. So there's great opportunities there. 
Caroline Buckel, Chief Executive Officer of Bordis Guevara, Ireland's Seafood Development Agency, for those who don't know it, and Gillian Hartford, the Country Executive for the 30% Club. Thank you both for joining us here in the studio on Taking Stock. After the break, if you're lucky enough to have a ton of cash or savings, should we be putting them on deposit in Portugal or Latvia? Welcome back to Taking Stock. I'm Joe Lynham and I'm sitting in for Mandy Johnson this week. Now, at the end of March this year, more than €150 billion Euro was held on deposit by households in Ireland, with over €140 billion in overnight deposits, earning next to nothing, and €2.5 billion on deposit with agreed maturity. But the fact that the banks are under limited pressure to pass on recent interest rate increases, remember they've gone from naught to 4.25% in the past 14 months, it begs the question, do we have any options when it comes to our deposits? Well, last month, the Minister for Public Expenditure and former Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue said that Irish people can deposit their savings in a bank abroad if they're not satisfied with interest rates at home. He actually said it's not unpatriotic to do so. But is this a viable option? Well, one lady who knows a little bit more about this is Sinead Ryan, the consumer expert and host of The Home Show here on Newstalk. Hello, Sinead. Hey, Joe. So, is it unpatriotic to uh, lodge your money in elsewhere in the Eurozone? Well, the banks don't want it here, that's sure. They they've, don't want your money? They don't, because they've indicated through their interest rates that they're not interested. They've too much money. £150 billion is too much money. Uh, come again. Banks are saying we've too much money. Mm. And they are underlent and they are over leveraged. Remember, a lot of people think that the deposit is the asset. The mm. deposit is the liability. <laughs> if everybody queues up outside the bank in the morning and looks for their money back, the bank's in serious trouble, right? Ask That's the called... people of Cyprus about that because they found out the hard way. Do, or just watch It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas time and yeah. you'll see what a bank run looks like. So uh, the banks want enough that they can lend out, but they don't want to be hanging on to people's money, uh, you know, especially people who have it there long term mm. um, and it is unproductive. Uh, now, the state doesn't want your money either. Because Even though they do have a state savings scheme. They do. But the problem is we have a state savings scheme run by the NTMA. The post offices, of course, are state-owned and we have a whole load of, of savings products. Mm. Um, but like, it's one thing for politicians to come out and give out to the banks and wrap them on the knuckles for not passing on increased interest rates. But their own bank is not doing it. Yeah. There has been no push to increase rates on state savings products, on prize bond draws, on post office, nothing. Well, I mean, just to clarify that uh, the government is leaning on, publicly leaning on the banks and uh, the state savings account run by the NTMA, as you say, did raise its rates last week. So, I mean, you're right. It's and inch- we have seen glacially. So we have seen Bank of Ireland, for instance, came out of the traps first and said, OK, we'll raise interest rates on ver- on a certain range of saving products for a certain period of time. Don't lose the run of yourself mm-hmm. up to 3%. But you need to lock in. You need to lock in. Well, what they want, Joe, is regular savings. They're not yeah. interested in 100 grand of granny's money sitting on deposit, okay? Mm-hmm. They don't want that money. What they want is you putting in a thousand euros every single month out of your salary. And why is that, Jen? Why do they prefer the regular savers than people who just give them a huge amount of cash that they can play with? Because... Uh, First of all, it tends to be short-term money. 
Okay, if you're investing in something that's going to be 10 years down the road, like your children's education or, or, you know, something like that, you're better off investing it and getting proper investment advice over that. Uh, If you just want to hang on to it, to have it minded for a couple of years while you're saving for a house deposit, perhaps Mm. a lot of the money is there doing that. Mm -hmm. Or you want to save for next year's summer holiday. Well, lovely. Um, Then they're more than happy to facilitate that. Why? Because there's a very good chance they're going to get the mortgage at the other end. And the loan is is the asset. The mortgage is what they want. Not your money, but if you save with them, the chances are you'll tap them first for the loan. So Because consumers are lazy. Not all money is the same. And, and that's really the point of it. So they are inching towards offering rates. They've been embarrassed into it. So AIB Bank Fund, remember, there's no competition out there, Joel. Like you've only three banks. You know, AIB and EBS are the same bank. Then you've PTSB and then you've Bank Farland. That's it. So you have three banks, uh, two big ones pulled out. Uh, and so competition is the loser. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, the banks are like, OK, well, we'll do it if it suits us and we'll do it if we have to. Uh, but there's certain, none of them will offer anything like the 4.25% they are getting from the European Central Bank. So when, so when the European Central Bank raises, it has two rates, but the money that it pays the banks has gone up to four and a quarter percent. So if Bank of Ireland, PTSB or AIB throw a couple of billion, because they never do anything less than that, into the ESB, they will get the 4.25%. Yeah, why wouldn't they? I mean, that's money for old rope. It's your money, first of all. It's, it's my money. It's not their money. Mm. They hoover up all the interest on it. Mm-hmm. Um the European Central Bank had been discouraging all that when rates were low. They were charging them to keep lots of money on deposit. Mm-hmm. The banks are saying, oh, we're going to take this now. Do they have to pass it on? No, they don't. Unlike tracker mortgages, where they absolutely have to, they yeah. don't have to pass it on. But they're far quicker doing it where you've a loan than where you've a deposit. Now, uh, the Irish government no longer owns shares in Bank of Ireland, but it does own a chunky bit of AIB, around 50%, and it owns a huge bit of PTSB, Why can't the very big shareholder tell them this is what you need to do? Well, when you have the very big shareholder or the former very big shareholder saying, listen, don't worry about it, put it in Latvia or Belgium, (laughs) you know, I mean, you're doing the bank's job for them, really. Uh, They don't because, of course, Joe, when it suits politicians, they say, well, we can't possibly intervene in what is a business decision. They're a huge shareholder in a a commercial venture. Indeed, Uh, but they have been very reluctant to do so because they like to see the central bank as the overseer, the regulator. Mm. That has had mixed fortunes, of course, over the years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And banks don't like being told what to do. And remember, AIB and PTSB are up for sale. The the finance minister wants to flog off the rest of the shares. Now, you don't do that by usurping their profit. Mm. So, uh, you know, you're trying to flog off what's left of the banks back to the market. Mm. You want AIB and to be EPS healthy and, and wealthy, correct, and look as if their shareholders are making money. Ah, you see, it's all making sense now. Follow talk, the money. Talk to me about what's available for those people who actually do want to put their savings into eurozone banks. Okay, well, first of all, I think it came as a surprise to people that they could do this. There's nothing stopping you putting your money with an EU member state bank. All right, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So anybody can pick a bank and put their deposit there. Uh, and there is a, an, a brokerage firm called Raisin.com, which mm-hmm. is like a comparison website. And it, it do- tracks all this for the whole of and Europe. And it's run by a German bank or something it like is. that. Yeah, but actually they're very good. They're very solid. They give you all the information you want to know to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, And they don't charge for that. So it, the foreign banks want lump sum money much more than the Irish banks do. So why I, do they want it and we don't? Well, you see, 
Like savings we are, culture. We are yeah. We are savers. The Germans are savers. Okay. We are spenders. And remember, yeah, but we have had a history where we're we're kind of we've moved into the hoarding phase now, and that's because we had such a severe crash that people say any money I actually have, I'm going to hang on to it. The COVID supports were so generous in Ireland that people mm-hmm. now had excess money. Not everybody, not all the time, but they're worried about what's in the future, mm. and they're hanging on to that money. Uh, 150 billion is far too much. So other banks are wait are happy enough to hoover up some of that, and you can get better uh, lump sum rates. Uh, so, for instance, um, this week, Banco Portugues. Uh, so Portuguese Bank is offering four percent on a three-year fixed rate for a lump sum. Now, that's a three-year fixed rate, so you must lock your money in for three years. Correct. And that rate, Sinead, is gross. And that's a gross rate. All these rates are gross, okay? Um, There's uh, Blue Ore, which is a Latvian bank, offering 3.49, and United, which is a French bank, offering 3.35. Now, the important thing to realise is not all these will have the same bank rating that our banks do. So, for instance, Banco Portuguese is a triple B plus rated, whereas United is a double A. So double A is better. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to signify these aren't proper banks. They're all covered by the deposit guarantee scheme run by the ECB. So that's €100,000 per person, per account. Mm-hmm. You've no worries doing this. However, different countries apply the equivalent of what we call DIRT, Deposit Interest Retention Tax. Ours is 33%. Some of them apply higher rates. Some of them in France apply none at all. And just to remind people that if you make, um, if you put your money on savings and you let's say you make €1,000 in interest, a third of that goes to the state and it's automatically swiped away. It is in Ireland. So here, yes, a third or, or thereabouts is taken off at source, they call it. So yeah. you don't have to tell revenue you got it. The bank whips it away from you and gives you the you net rate. You never see it. You never see it. Mm. And revenue love that kind of tax. Oh, they do. Um, but in other countries, of course, they do things slightly differently. Uh, so where you have a bank that charges no dirt at all, mm-hmm. then you'll get back a gross figure. Of course, what you'll need to do then is declare that profit to revenue in Ireland. In your self-assessment? Correct. In your Form, form 11 or Form 12, depending on how you're employed. And alert them to the fact that you earn this in in deposit interest and then pay the 33%. The complication arises where the foreign bank also applies a dirt rate because if they do, you could be double dirted. (laughs) And the issue with that is... Just invented a new word. (laughs) There is an offset. You know, there's a double taxation agreement really between all member states, but my goodness, it's a pain in the ass to go around and apply for it and fill out the forms and get it back. And all of that, exactly. So anybody, for instance, um, and it might interest listeners to know, with the Revolut account, uh, which is... Supposedly two million of them. Two 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 million million accounts. accounts. Yes. And lots and lots of Irish people love Revolut for all it does. That's uh, a Lithuanian bank Mm -hmm. uh, because that's where they have their licence. Now, technically, anyone who has a foreign bank account with Revolut should have declared that on their Form 12 to revenue already. I'm sure you did, Joe. I... I absolutely certainly did and I'm sure all two million account holders are doing that as well. (laughs) And of course if you are making currency transactions you may have a capital gains tax liability if you're moving from Hungarian Florence to you know Norwegian Krona or whatever I was. (laughs) So listen it is complicated and I am not convinced even at the best rate which is 4% currently on some gross uh, that actually that's still not beating inflation. Well inflation in this country is around 5%. 
Uh, and so uh, once you take your dirt off and you've locked your money in for that, that becomes money that you can't touch then for three years. Indeed. I don't think it comes near to inflation. It doesn't. And, and inflation remains a big problem. But here's how savers can beat inflation. And it's not by putting their money in a Latvian bank. It is by paying down high interest bearing debt. Mm-hmm. It's by investing it if you can do without it for five years or more. It's by spending it. It's going to be worth less next year. So so spend it now, preferably on Irish goods and services. So a euro in the hand is worth more than Absolutely. one in the bush of one year in, or three years into Correct. the future. Or to use Ronnie Reagan's term, it, inflation is the silent mugger. So don't get your money nicked. Now, is there any legal issues with, with putting your money in Latvia or Portugal or any other eurozone? Is there any, uh, is there any something that you would need to worry about on the legal side or is it only a taxation side issue? No, it's only tax. Um, the only issue would arise um, when Britain was part of the EU. That They, of course, offer very good interest rates at the moment because they control their own currency, their mm-hmm. own central bank, the Bank of England. So actually, the rates there are very attractive. But you need a British address, a UK address. They, you cannot move the money as easily outside the Eurozone. And if you've got a sister or a cousin or an uncle, you know, in Stockport or in and Ealing. And trust them very much to keep it in their name. Okay. On your behalf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can help. I can sense a, a bit of doubt coming into your thing. Well. Yeah. So, so look, uh, we're focused on the Eurozone. So uh, all that glistens is not necessarily gold is what you're, you're yeah. trying to say. And, and also it's not necessarily easy. So it makes sense if you have a large lump sum. Now, the chances are if you've three, four, five hundred thousand euro, you probably have a tax advisor who's doing this for you already. Mm-hmm. Do you need to keep it liquid? If you do, you can't lock into one of these rates anyway. Now, some of them are well, offering decent rates for a year. They only cover you up to 100 anyway. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, certainly businesses would have different routes to go down in terms of, of a liquid cash that they need, cash flow. Uh, but for ordinary individuals, I mean, the people who have big deposits in Ireland are mm-hmm. those saving for mortgages. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't touch this stuff with the barge pole. And pensioners. Yeah. And you're not going to tell yeah. your 86-year-old mother to go over to Latvia and put her money on deposit there. Well, she like, doesn't it, physically have to go to Latvia. We need to stress. Sense. We need to stress no. it. Yeah. Uh, very briefly, would you advise people to, to invest their money for that for what you're talking about in non-deposit accounts, i.e. shares, some sort of other form of investment? Absolutely. Uh, with two conditions. First of all, that you do not need it in the next five years. And secondly, that you talk to an, as a proper uh, financial advisor and get good advice. And not just your mate down the pub. Correct. Sinead, as ever, wonderful. Uh, Sinead Ryan, the consumer expert and host of The Home Show. Back in a moment with uh, talking about Brexit and what it's done to the UK economy. Now, welcome back. You're listening to Taking Stock. My name is Joe Lynham and I'm filling in for Mandy Johnson uh, for this week. So Brexit has dominated the political discourse for eight years on both sides of the Irish Sea. The UK has left Europe in its rearview mirror, or has it? And has it been worth it? My next guest thinks not, and his latest book is Goodbye United Kingdom, Descent into Chaos, 2015 to 22. Josh White collects his hot takes on Brexit and its aftermath, as much of a political autobiography as a blow-by-blow analysis. Josh, thank you for joining us on Taking Stock. Remind us what happened in 2016 and who voted for it. Well, in 2016, in the morning of, uh, I think it was the 24th, people woke up in a kind of dream, (laughs) at least I did where we were taking in the 
the results of the referendum, in which in which the majority of of British voters in the other in that referendum voted for Leave. However, the the two camps of Remain and Leave we could break down in different ways. Um, it's very often talked about as if the Leave vote spoke for the English working class or the British working class in the North and the Midlands in particular, while the middle classes were all backing Remain. Actually, the truth is that all classes were divided um, and a middle class vote played a huge role in the, in the Leave victory. And it was also backed by different elements of British business and British finance. Though, of course, most financial institutions and major companies favoured Remain. Uh, but there was definitely a kind of a swing element of elite voters, middle class voters and, yeah, some working class voters. I got a sense, Josh, that the two principal groups who voted to leave were, as you say, the the less well-off um, and less perhaps less well-travelled uh, people in the north of England and the Midlands, but also the very well-off in the home counties, the shires in the southeast of England, and that those groups coalesced and they were very rare bedfellows, but they got together on June the 23rd, 2016, and it was enough to sway uh, the vote. But one gets a sense that the people in the shires, the super well-off, the landowning people, they won't be affected by the result of Brexit. No, because most of their constituencies are not going to be hit hard by the loss of investment in terms of EU subsidies. You know, if you go to communities in, in the Midlands and the North, you'll find plaques saying, you know, this train station was renovated with EU funding, that kind of thing. Um, and that's true of Chesterfield. Where, where my family is from, around mining town of Bolsover. And yet that's one of the highest leave voting areas. So it's not just about uh, economics, it's, it's a cultural aspect as well. But it was very unusual to see that leave campaign managed to bring together these very different constituencies. And as you say, the shires on one hand and these deindustrialized mining towns on the other side. And how do they do it? Because, you know, a lot of people might have been shocked with the result on the 24th of June 2016, but it mm. was many, many years in the making. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of official Remain campaigners were very complacent and thought that the arguments could easily be won just on, quote-unquote, the facts, GDP figures, that kind of thing. And really the leave arguments weren't serious and weren't worth kind of engaging with, but actually those leave arguments have been building for at least 20, 25 years, really picking up in the early 90s with Maastricht and building up serious momentum over the over the years. Uh, thanks, to, thanks to the support of right-wing media outfits especially, but also we have these unique uh, political parties that emerge like UKIP especially, with Nigel Farage of course, um, and you had elements of support within the mainstream Conservative Party and to some extent the Labour Party as well. Um, so there was, there was definitely a pool of anger in the country already about falling living standards and economic stagnation. That was a key factor in all of this, even though, of course, as I've stressed, uh, the well-off played a crucial role in all of this. 
it's really interesting the way the Labour Party was almost ambivalent to the result. It was led by Jeremy Corbyn at the time and he was, how should I put this nice, um, nicely, lukewarm about the referendum. He had uh, campaigned as a younger politician against Britain joining the then EEC in the 1970s and that stance might, hasn't changed, hadn't changed much by the time the referendum came along. So a lot of Labour voters took that cue from the Labour Party leader of the time to vote out. I think, I think a certain, a large minority of Labour voters definitely did. Uh, but I think they would have, even if uh, the Labour Party had been led by a fervent Remainer at the time. Um, again, that, there are myriad historical reasons for that. And yes, if you go back to the 70s, Benism, this Eurosceptic kind of uh, socialist politics, was very powerful and very prominent on the Labour left. So this is Tony Benn. Well, I think I think historically you have you had Benism, and Jeremy Corbyn comes out of that, but it's not the only only factors. Definitely not. Where are we now? So the referendum uh, was carried. You talk about mm. the political chaos that ensued after the referendum. There was a whole slew of prime ministers. Uh, Cameron stepped down straight away, then Theresa May, and then she was bullied out by Boris Johnson, and then he was deposed briefly by Liz Truss, and now we have Rishi Sunak. And they're all Brexiteers. Obviously, Liz Truss changed coats very rapidly because she was a passionate Remainer until she realised it was never going to get her to the top. So where are we now in Britain? Uh, You talk about chaos and the downfall and the end of the UK as we know it. I think... In the long term, that's a serious prospect. And by long term, I mean you could talk about, you know, low end 15 years or 20, 30 years maybe. Um, But there are serious divisions which have opened up, which are are not going away. Uh, And in a sense, Brexit never ends because we will always be kind of polarized over how we interact with continental Europe. And part of that is about our especially the English, our poor understanding of our own history, frankly, um, with regard to the empire and with regard to how the empire broke apart and what that means for our country and the rest of the world. So the empire still looms large in the ethos and the thinking of quite a few people in Britain and English people, as you stress yourself. Does this mean that the United Kingdom, as we know it, could break up, i.e. Scotland going its own way, potential reunification in the island of Ireland. Uh, And is that inevitable or can that trajectory be stopped? I don't think it's inevitable, certainly in the case of Scotland, because as we've seen, the SNP has imploded, but there's still significant support for independence. And I think that that's likely to grow over time. Um, But what the Scottish nationalists lack is a clear mechanism or route to another referendum on independence. That's because the Conservatives Um, will never give them another referendum. For as long as they can, yeah, absolutely. And unless it's a a very weak Labour government, I think Keir Starmer is very unlikely to play ball with the SNP. And then on the other hand, of course, you have Northern Ireland, which is a very different story because you have the British border. And the question of Brexit has raised a whole series of very serious trade questions, which of course buy into uh, cultural and historic 
grievances going back to again to British imperialism, frankly. Um, in a way, it's, it may be more likely the Irish unification or reunification happens at a faster timeline, but we're still in the unknown. Um, the Good Friday Agreement, of course, includes some kind of provisions and vagaries about what a border poll would look like and what basis it could be held. That's more than what Scottish nationalists have. So maybe the timeline is more favourable to... Uh, to Irish unification. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. I'm Joe Lynham and I'm fitting in for Manny Johnson this week. Let's look forward to um, a general election which has to take place in the UK before December next year. Um, every single poll suggests that Labour are not going to just win, but they're going to romp home and potentially have at least a 100-seat majority, at which point they're, they can introduce whatever legislation they want. And yet, and yet... Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, uh, never wants to talk about Brexit, even though he himself was a passionate Remainer and most of his front bench would be regarded as Blairites. Uh, the Labour Party refused to talk about Brexit. Yep, I think Keir Starmer is trying to avoid, as he sees it, all of the uh, blunders and failures of the Corbyn era. Um, but as part of that, he's been very quick to... Pull series of pull a series of U-turns on Brexit. So he switched very quickly from being the arch remainer to effectively signing off on the Tory Brexit deal, and has turned against freedom of movement. He's in favour of the points-based immigration system, which is a is a disgrace, a totally racist policy, frankly. And he's been wrapping himself in the union flag, thinking that that will shore up. Labour's support in the North and the Midlands. But I think a lot of those voters feel patronised and they see Starmer as deeply untrustworthy. So I think, yes, we see huge leads right now in the polls. I suspect those polls will get much, much closer on an election camp- in an election campaign where you see the Tories really go to town on Starmer's uh, inconsistencies. So you think that um, he won't romp home as the polls currently suggest, but do you, you still believe that he will win? And if he does win, will he inch back towards the single market, slowly rejoining EU institutions and EU bodies and agencies? I think, I think he'll definitely win going by current conditions. I think it's very, very difficult for Sunak to turn, turn things around at this point. I can go into great depth about why the electoral coalition is falling apart, but that's that's what's happening. You Tory voters are no longer sheltered from the impact of Tory economic policy. Will Starmer's Labour Party turn back to the towards the EU? I think they'll probably make some tentative, pragmatic steps uh, where they have to, but they will need to be pushed. And I think if Remainers want a serious shift to happen. They need to fight for it. They can't wait for Starmer to do it for them. Now, do you think, assuming that there is a Labour victory uh, uh, within the next 12 to 14 months, do you think then that the Tories, assuming that Sunak steps down and goes over to America where he feels more comfortable, do you think that the Tories will then move back towards the centre or centrism because they moved wildly to the right and uh, mm. that's got the economy to where it is now. Is there a chance that the Tories could become a far more one-nation pragmatic entity than they are at the moment? I think a huge row 
will start within the Tory party as soon as they're out of power, far worse than what we've seen potentially. Um, there is a there is a significant hard right element in the Tory party that wants um, wants to stick to this populist line and wants to go even further in some ways. But there is still a centrist element within the within the Conservative Party, so it is going to be there's going to be a power struggle of some kind, I think. But I also suspect that a lot of those hard right Tories are quietly hoping for a Labour victory because they think that they that that will provide the space for them to really re reconsolidate within the within the Tory Tory establishment. And finally, do you think that Brexit? will end up a little bit like the Iraq invasion, that a couple of years into the future, no one will want to talk about it and everyone will pretend that they voted Remain. I'm a little bit sceptical of that, to be honest. The, the polling is interesting on this, and it does suggest that there is a lot of, uh, a lot of regret at this point. However, I think if you dig a bit deeper, I think a lot of levers are, are very much in denial. You know, they see it as the COVID pandemic is responsible for this economic disarray. But I think over time, it's going to be harder to pretend otherwise. Um, and there's a lot of one true Scotsman kind of formulations, i.e. that we haven't had the real Brexit. We still have to win more battles and so on. There's a lot of that going on. Like communism. Josh, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Uh, that's Josh White, the author of Goodbye, you United Kingdom, Descent into Chaos 2015 to 2022. And the book is published by Battleground, who are based in Brussels and is a non-profit media organisation providing big picture analysis and reflection on the stories of our times. The ambition is to set a new standard for what journalism ought to do in Europe, if not worldwide. And that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast, first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app, of course, which I'm sure you all have downloaded. Thank you to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, for doing a sterling job and helping me take the reins for a week. Thanks also to Simon Keane on research and to Hugo De Silva on sound. And if you want to contact us with an email, drop a line to us, takingstock, all one word, at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Joe Lynham, sending in for Mandy this week. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.